something unique this morning in that we are doing the entirety of chapter 3 and 4 in a single day. And so um, Jacqueline is going to help me um, to read. Uh, We love God's Word. God's Word is perfect. It is without error. It is incapable of being wrong. Um, And so we desire for the entire fellowship to be together as we read God's Word each week. And so um, after we read, uh, we'll dismiss our children into the children's area. There's a place to check them in at the back. There should be some volunteers to help you find that if you need it. Uh, But Jacqueline, we're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. And so why don't you read chapter 3 and then I'll follow up with chapter 4. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that I have that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil, pe- while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have, be- have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is briefed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished the race. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in, uh, love with his, is in, lo- in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone uh, is with me. Get Mark and bring, with him, uh, bring him with you, for he is uh, very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring my cloak that I left in Carpus at Troas. 
Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he uh, strongly opposed our message. In my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Uh, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Tropimus, who is ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do uh, Prudus and Linus and Claudia and the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen and amen. Hey, take a few minutes to greet one another. Grab a cup of coffee. Meet somebody new. Children can be dismissed to the children's area. And in a few minutes, we'll come back together to unpack 2 Timothy 3 and 4. All right, everyone. As you guys make your way back, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we'll begin. We've got a lot of ground, obviously, that we are going to um, cover this morning. Um, This is uh, intentional, intentional to a a certain degree, to a a major degree, right? Um, And when I sat down uh, a few weeks ago and began to map out where we are going to be as we come into 2 Timothy from 1 Timothy, um, I thought I had a pretty good idea of the structure of the book, but then the more and more that I considered what we see in chapter 3 and then the call in chapter 4, it just seems as though the second half of this book um, is just... If we, if we consider it from a 30,000-foot perspective, which we like to do often, and I'll explain the second reason that we're doing this in just a moment, then there's really a lot of similarity, right? It's really a seamless transition from chapter 3 into chapter 4, which makes total sense because we understand, like, if you're at all familiar with the way that the Bible was originally written, there are not natural, uh, like, like verse and chapter markers that distinguish the turning of a page, right? And so it would make sense that there are um, there's a really clear transition uh, from chapter three on into uh, chapter four. So that's the first reason that we're doing it is because there's a lot of um, important information that we see communicated in chapter three that leads us into very naturally what we see in chapter four. The second reason that we are doing that is because as we leave one and two Timothy um, and work our way towards our next series, we are going to be tackling massive uh, chunks of scripture at a single time. Um, We are going to, over the next few weeks, be transitioning from two Timothy on into the book of Genesis. And so um, for that to happen, we are going to take a really, a really high view of um, what we see going on in the book of Genesis, almost chapters at a time as opposed to verses. And so, this is getting us ready for that, right? This is getting us ready, and we're preparing even now our hearts um, for uh, the book of Genesis. So, um, but we're in 2 Timothy this morning, and we've got a lot um, to look at. And so we almost start with this question as we come into chapter 3 and chapter 4, and we're going to work on connecting some dots as we go through. So if this is your first time with us, and you're kind of parachuting into the middle of this book, Um, Don't freak out, okay? Um, We're going to do some work to help bring some things together that will really help us to get, you know, a a fairly solid understanding of what Paul is communicating to Timothy as a whole. But we certainly see this morning the faithfulness and the goodness of God, 
Right? And so if you come in here this morning and maybe you're familiar with things of God and maybe you're not. Maybe you have certain perceptions or ideas about who God is and maybe you have no perception and no idea about who God is. One thing that we learn as we look at chapter 3 and chapter 4 and we consider what God is doing by way of the advancement of the gospel through the ministry of Paul and Timothy and those in Ephesus and what's going on in Rome is that God is good in the face of difficult trial and suffering and he is faithful. This is an idea that Paul is going to revisit for Timothy a handful of times as we work our way through these two chapters. And it's all upon this backdrop of call towards endurance, right? The, if, we, we talk, if we consider the commands that Paul lays out for Timothy in this book, they are many. There are a lot of like very personal instructions that Paul lays out for him. Instructions as to what Timothy is to to do and to be concerned with what he is to be working toward. And we get that again in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. But in order for us to to see that and for Timothy to see that and be able to enter into it as Paul so desires and ultimately the Lord, we have to know uh, and be sure of the character of God, right? We have to be sure of the character of God as we as we seek faithfulness in the face of difficulty. And so as we come into chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're going to read again in smaller sections what we just read in a larger section. And we're going to make a few um, observations as we go along. And so let's look, as we begin our time, there's a lot to cover here. Um, Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Let's kick the ball down the field a bit as we we get started. Paul writes to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, if you've been with us for some period of time, you know that this sounds like we are beating the same drum again and again and again. And it is this, that the Christian life is a difficult life, that the pilgrim life is a hard life. You go, wow, we heard that last week and we heard it the week before and we heard it the week before. And you're right, (laughs) right? Like we have, we said it again and again and again. And do you know why? Do you know why we said it again and again and again? Well, it's because the Bible says it again and again and again, right? It's this this idea that the Christian life, the pilgrim life, is a challenging one. Last week we talked about about Paul's emphasis for Timothy, right, uh, as pertaining to this transition that he is going through as he steps into this void that is to be left by Paul as he departs this world. All right, Timothy, I have um, been, been kind of like leading the charge in a lot of ways, but I'm imprisoned, and as we're going to see this morning as we work our way through these two chapters, I don't believe that I'm getting out, right? That this is the end, that, that my time, gospel ministry, engaging here in the world is ebbing to a close. And so there is a real need for faithful men to step into this void that is going to be left as a result of me piecing out, And as you know, based on my current circumstances, it is not an easy task. And so the encouragement has been again and again and again in the face of difficulty that is sure to arrive. My life is evidence of that. Remain faithful and endure. Trust in the goodness of God. That's the the emphasis again and again. And we see it in in verse 1 of chapter 3. Understand this. Mark this. This is what Paul's saying. Timothy. 
you guys familiar with this, like, mark my words, right? Like, mark my words. This is to happen. You've probably, like, said that before. Somebody said that to you before. And they are speaking towards the certainty of future events. Mark my words. Like, this is it, right? This is, this is what's going to happen. This is not what's going to happen. I guarantee it. That's what Paul is saying here as he begins chapter 3. Understand this, mark this, that in the last days, days initiated through, as the author of Hebrews writes, the coming of King Jesus into the world, there will come times of difficulty. Right? That, that you are uh, anticipating the last days, but you are also living in the last days. This is the instruction from Paul to Timothy here and now. And so, therefore, man, it is the instruction for God's people here and now, right? That we are currently, because our king has come, right? he's, he's lived the, the, the perfect life of obedience to the instruction of the Father. He has fulfilled the scriptures Right, he's giving himself, given himself sacrificially in our place so that we, right, by way of repentance and faith and his resurrection and his righteous work might be brought into intimacy with God, right? This is what we're, we're talking about again and again and again. They're in the last days. We are in the last days. The last days are happening and the last days are before us. I don't need a flowchart or a tambourine to unpack this for you guys, right? Like we are living in the last days. We know that because they are, they are happening as Jesus comes on into the scene. That is what the author of the Hebrews writes. And so, as as we have lived in the last days and are living in the last days and will live in the last days, man, difficulty. Holy cow. Man, I hope that there's some hope in here for us because so far it's quite bleak, right? Look with me at verse 2. How is this to happen? Right, what does this look like? What type of difficulty is Paul foreshadowing toward for Timothy? He says people are going to be lovers of self. Marks, 19 marks that we're going to see that he lays out. They're going to be lovers of self. People are going to be lovers of money. They're going to be proud and arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, just brutal. Brutal, not loving good, but instead being treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, here's the deal. I don't know about you, but as I read through and I consider these things, I see my tendency in my own heart to begin traveling down certain paths that we see Paul presenting to Timothy. Right? To, to love the things of the world. Right? And to, to take pleasure in the things of the world. Right? To, to, to suppress ungodliness or to, to rather embrace ungodliness as opposed to suppressing ungodliness. These are our natural tendencies oftentimes. Having the appearance of godliness, but in all actuality, Paul writes, denying its power. We see in the lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God a great summarization of the 19 marks mentioned. Right, we see clearly that the ungodly will enthrone self-glorification. Right, that it will become all about glorifying self and exalting self, building up one's self and one's own little personal kingdom, as opposed to embracing and living godliness. What's Paul's instruction? Well, he says really clearly in verse 5, avoid such people. 
avoid such people. Now, we need to understand and think about what this means and also approach it in a right heart. Because, again, if you're anything like me, right, my tendency is to read through passages like this and go, avoid such people? Okay, time to pull up my Facebook friends list and just start identifying the ungodly and, like, severing them, right? Like, just cutting them off, defriending, separating. I have nothing to do with you because I clearly read passages like this, and that is what is to be encouraged. Only, I think that we see, again and again, and especially as we consider the lifetimes and ministry of Jesus, that avoiding such people, when you have a heart for people, ought to be a real struggle. That's what we observe from, from Jesus, right? Jesus is, is constantly embracing the, um, even the, the religious in an effort to, uh, to transform their thoughts and their perceptions and their understanding concerning the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, he says some really harsh things. Things, but we see again and again that it is not to simply sever one relationship from another, but instead to perhaps be, I don't know, like super aware, right? to be super considerate, like to, to understand and be able to clearly identify ungodliness and godliness that there is a... No, that's okay. No sweat. I was making sure it was mine because that's happened before, okay? Like, for real. Um, So, yeah, we see that there's a clear distinction between godliness and ungodliness. There's a call to avoid such people, but it's not to say altogether to separate oneself from, but instead to be ultra-careful to understand the tension and the distinction, right, and to move forward appropriately. He identifies some specifically. He says, hey, these guys are creeping into the households. And capturing weak and, and weak women burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Think about our culture for a minute. Like, think about the world that we live in. Like, we live in a world in which, like, the access to knowledge and information has never been more available than it currently is. Right, that you can, you can hear of something, know nothing about it, desire to learn, log into your phone, and find out all that you would ever want to know about this particular topic in moments. Right? Knowledge is available. Only again, there is this clear distinction between knowledge and the knowledge of truth. Constantly searching for knowledge is what Paul's talking about here, but they never arrive at a true knowledge of the truth. Just as he identifies two guys specifically. Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Do you know who Janus and Jambres are? Or who many uh, speculate? That they are, because names aren't exactly given to the original reference, but it seems to be uh, a connection that Paul is making. If you're at all familiar with the book of Exodus, you know that Moses, right, upon his time um, uh, away from his people, and then his return, right, comes into Pharaoh and says, um, God has, is desiring the deliverance of his people, right, that we, I'm here to bring God's people out of slavery, and he's met with opposition. And, and Pharaoh kind of parades these two guys out, these magicians who are able to, right, perform certain powerful acts that Moses displays in an effort to 
point towards the power of God. And we see these guys, they start throwing sticks on the ground, they become snakes, and eventually the whole thing runs its course, and their power is, is clearly right, superseded by the power of God. That's Janus and Jambres. Right? These guys who sought to oppose God and God's power. Paul says in verse 9, that, that just as Janus and Jambres did not get far, neither shall those practicing ungodliness in these days. They will not get very far, but in fact, their folly will be plain to all to see, right? Their, their rise is really clear and really impressive, but man, the fall, right? The, the fall is sure. It is certain. There's a clear distinction between, between ungodliness, the ungodliness of verses 1 through 5, and a life of godliness. And there's this great encouragement that we see through verses 1 and 9, and that is this. Right, let's think about what he's saying. What is, what is Paul encouraging for Timothy as he identifies the clear distinction between godliness and ungodliness? 19 marks of ungodliness he identifies. Or what, is he, what is he doing? What is, what is he pointing Timothy toward? Well, as God proved himself victorious over Pharaoh, know that Christ is victorious. Right? Know that ungodliness does not prevail. Right? We see ungodliness in the world around us. We feel ungodliness within us. The struggle towards holiness, desiring to best reflect the righteous character of our king. It's a struggle. And yet we see here that ungodliness, that unrighteousness shall not prevail, that God again and again and again over the course of redemptive history proves himself victorious. And now we see Paul pointing us back to Christ's victory that assures victory for his people. Here's the deal. As God's people... Right? Embracing lives of difficulty and trial and challenge and suffering. Thus is the pilgrim life. What is our encouragement? Well, it's this. It's that God is faithful and Christ is victorious. Right? That Christ is victorious. How do we know that? How do we know? How can we? Well, that seems like, like a pretty like, confident statement for you to make. I've known you for about five and a half minutes. How can you stand up there on stage and say that Christ is ultimately victorious? Well, here's why we can say that, right? Because, because there is this point right, in history that we can gaze upon observing the crucifixion of the God-man Jesus, his burial in a tomb, and his resurrection back to life, right? That our king is victorious over death, right? And our king is victorious over hell, that our king is victorious over the grave. And therefore, right, we can be confident that as we, as we move into these difficult times, Right, as we exist in these difficult times, seeking to, hang with me here, live mission in these difficult times, Christ is victorious. Right, we need to be reminded of that. Right, we come together every week and we, we recite these, these beautiful creeds, like the Apostles' Creed that we, that we began our time with today, right, that draw us back into Christ's victory. We need to know, you need to know, I need to know, Right, that Christ is indeed victorious. We've got to move on because we've got two chapters, right? Holy cow, how are we going to do it? Verse 10. Here's the distinction. 
right? Ungodliness, verses 1 through 9. Then we transition into verse 10. You, however, right, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, right? My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, you followed me and you are familiar with the difficulty. You can go back into the book of Acts and you can read of the instance that Paul is referencing here at Iconium and Lystra. The persecutions that, the, that Paul endured and the Lord's rescue of him from not just those but all persecutions. Paul is beaten up and drugged outside of the city believing to be dead. His friends run out there to, to see like what is going on to perhaps gather his body and take it back and, and bury him. And what do they find? Well, he's alive. Right? He stands up undoubtedly, like bloodied and, and battered, dusts off, right? And continues on in faithful gospel mission. He says, You're familiar with this. You're familiar with my suffering. You're familiar with my endurance. And he points to the source of his rescue. He says that the Lord rescued me, yet from them all. Who is our rescuer? Who is our redeemer? Who keeps us? Who holds us? Christ. Christ. There is this supernatural confidence that Paul possesses as he encourages Timothy into this pilgrim life and this life of difficulty that the Lord keeps us. Right? That the Lord keeps us. That the Lord overcomes Right, that he is his ruling and, and power, that his plan, his purpose, his will is sure, that it is certain. Indeed, Paul writes in verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Persecuted. All right, what does persecuted mean? Well, if you look at the Greek, Right? Like it means persecuted, okay? Like, it's a trick question. It means, like, things are going to be difficult, right? It means that there is this tension, right, between the people of God who reside in this gospel-centered, Christ-centered community and the world, right? That there's this clear distinction, right? And there is oftentimes tension and opposition. And as a result, there will be persecution, Verse 13, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, this is what this is what they are focused on. This is what they are doing, right? But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Right? Continue in what you have learned and what you firmly believed, knowing whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, Paul writes. What do we believe about the Bible? Right? And what is it that drives the way that we go about our time together as we gather every Sunday morning, as we meet together in Bible studies and in, and in DNA groups and in community groups? What, what is it that drives and informs the way that we live and the things that we do? It is this idea, right, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. For what? Well, for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Right? God is, get this, we need to hear this. I need to hear this. God is committed, 
right, to our transformation. Right, God is more committed to your transformation than you are committed to your transformation. God is more committed to your transformation than I am committed to your transformation. How encouraging. Right, God completing his people, equipping them for every good work. Right, our, our conviction of exposition is explained by what we see in verses in verse 16. Now, what does that mean? Our commitment to exposition is explained. Well, here's what we believe and we practice here as a fellowship. For those of you who might be new here with us this morning, great opportunity. You've seen some of who and what we are as we've gathered together this morning. But one thing that we do and one thing that we love is opening up God's Word and reading it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We believe in sequential exposition. We read through books of the Bible. We start 1 Timothy and we don't finish 1 Timothy until we finish 1 Timothy. Okay, you're not going to come here next week and find us parachuting into some, some passage in numbers, right? And preaching that as our primary text. It's just not going to happen. Why? Well, because God has spoken to his people, right? And he's, he's spoken by way of these authors communicating these ideas that are profitable for all the things that he says in verse 16. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That we, right, men and women of God might be complete and thus equipped for every good work. Why do we love the Bible? Well, because the Bible's perfect, right? Like, the Bible's perfect. If you're under any type of, like, delusion concerning, like, the scriptures, right, and, like, are they, okay, what's going on here? Like, they're perfect. It's God's Word. We have them, and we see that, that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to transform sinners into the people of God. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to transform sinners into the people of God. And in doing so, He brings a great glory to His name. And so we gather together each week, get this, okay? We gather together each week, and we greet one another, and we drink coffee together, and we enjoy fellowship with one another. And we do so not in an effort to pat one another on the back and to say, you are stellar, although we love you all. Right? But we, we do it... Right, Because we worship a God who loves sinners and calls them into relationship with himself. He's done that for us. And that shapes and informs the way that we go about meeting and greeting one another. Paul writes this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Is everybody good? Are we good so far? Right, trekking along? I'm surveying the room. Everyone seems to be all right, and so we will we'll continue. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is uh, to judge the living and the dead. There's the reality. Christ Jesus judging the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, here's the charge. Oh, this is so sweet. We've transitioned into chapter 4 now. We made it. Preach the word. Timothy, here's my charge to you, right? Here's my call to you. Preach the word in season, out of season. Always be ready to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, what do these things mean? What does it mean to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort? Well, I'm going to tell you. We see in this call to reprove a call to expose sin. 
right? To expose sin. Be about the work of exposing sin. What is it that exposes sin? Well, it's the light of the word of God that exposes sin in our lives. And so we, we live under the light, right? Like we're, like here it is, right? We're people under the light. We live under the light that our sin might be exposed. We, we share and speak the truth of God's word into our fellowships and into our community that we might be about the work of first exposing sin, only then to rebuke, that is to call out of sin. Right? So we see first this call to reprove, to live under the light, to care for uh, the well-being of one another, and to willingly enter into difficult conversations that sin might be exposed. And then we see the goal, right? To, to call out of sin and in turn to exhort. Right, to encourage in love towards faith. Paul says this. Here, This is not your goal, Timothy. Do you guys ever do this? Sometimes it's helpful for me to think about what is he not saying in order that I can best understand what he is saying. You guys ever practice this? Here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying reprove, rebuke, and then heap on guilt. <laughs> okay? That's not what he's saying. That's why that third call there is so critically important. Repure, hey, expose sin, enter into difficult conversations that sin might be exposed in our life, call that sin out, and then just pour on buckets and buckets and buckets of guilt. No, that is not what Paul says. Paul says, Reprove, rebuke, and then encourage. Right? And encourage in love toward faith. It's what Christ-centered community looks like. Right? It's what, it's what, it's what a, a transparent community looks like. Right? Sin is exposed, called out, and then encouraged. And love towards faith. Paul continues on with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But instead, they're going to have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth. And wander off into myths. Right? This is what it looks like. Right? Go Think back to what we saw in chapter 3 verse 1. Understand that in the last days there will come Difficulty. He's continuing to unpack that. That's why we're doing chapter 3 and 4 here at the same time. But you, Timothy, chapter 4, verse 5, always be sober-minded. Be sober-minded, right? Clear, right? Endure suffering, he says. What then will the Christian life require? It is a life of endurance. He continues to unpack that in just a moment with this beautiful illustration, perhaps one of my favorites from the writings of Paul. Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Do word ministry, Timothy. Right? Be about word ministry. Right? We're all doing, I hope, inventory of our own lives right now. Right? And we're considering the call from Paul to Timothy. And we're going, okay, what does it look like for me right, as a gospel-centered individual, as a gospel-transformed individual to enter into this gospel ministry? What does it look like to fulfill ministry and to do the work of an evangelist? Well, we see that there is heavy emphasis on the word. Right? Love, love the word, proclaim the word, herald. That's a word that we do not use very often, but it's awesome. 
herald the word. Right? Herald the word. Like, share the word. Proclaim the word. Shout the word. Be word people. Paul's encouragement to Timothy, be a word person. Verse 6. Paul knows where he is. He he knows where he is and he knows what is going on. He's super clear-headed. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I'm not getting out of here. That's what he's saying. I'm not getting out of here. I'm not expecting to get out of prison this time. Right? This is this is this is the end. Verse 7. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Man, look at this. This is incredible. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, who purchased this crown for me, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also, good news, God's people, saints, gathered together in Carrollton, Georgia, on the campus of the University of West Georgia this morning, All who have loved his appearing. Paul equates the conclusion of his life with the end of a fight. We talked about it a few weeks ago. right? How the Christian life is not one that we ought to understand. Exists in fields of lilies. Right? But is it instead a life that that is existing in a ring. That it is a fight. That this is the Christian life. Right? He, he continues and he equates it here with a race. Now, I want to show us a picture. Don't pull it up just yet. There's a, there's a picture. Don't pull it up though. i got to build the suspense. Okay, like, It's like my favorite part right here. Okay? So, so there's this picture that I came across a couple of years ago. Um, and I've, I, I, as soon as I saw the picture, I thought about this passage. And I was like, I cannot wait to go to, to Timothy and to be able to because it's just beautiful. It's this beautiful picture of what I imagine, right, if we, if we step into the illustration, right, if we step into the illustration for a moment, I imagine that this is kind of what it looks like. If we step fully into the finishing of the race and obviously having run it and now crossing the line, having kept the faith, right, this is, this is kind of what it, what, it, what it looks like. Can we, can we pull this up? Like, this is an incredible picture, right? Like, this guy is working. Like, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with what doing work looks like, like, this is it. I, I, I've looked again and again and again. In fact, I had to go back on an old cell phone to find this picture because I saved it. Um, and, and then I had to send it to myself. And I searched for it to try to find the story behind this, this photo. And I couldn't find it again. And so I'm going to have to give my best stab at what this photo is. And then if any of you smart people happen to find it this next week, bring me back into the fold so the next time I go through 2 Timothy, I can pull it out and I'll be most informed. I'm pretty sure that if I remember correctly, this picture was taken at, um, at like, like a senior's special Olympics event. Right, and you can see there's a lot going on here because you obviously have like like this 
this foreground in which we see, man, he's, he's, drawing, he's drawing close, right, to the line, I would imagine. Now, this may be the 400, I don't know, he may be on lap one, in which case, dude, pray for you, man, because, like, because this looks like challenging stuff, right? But he's got, he's got this shirt, right, Jesus is Lord, right, and he's, he's running the race, and he's, he's man, he, there's, a, there's a face of, like difficulty, right? There's difficulty he's experiencing. There's there's striving. There's enduring that we're seeing here, right? But then look behind him, like he's not the only one running, is he? Right? Like there's there's other contestants or participants, right? Uh, running the race as as well. Man, this is what this is what the Christian life looks like. Right? This is what it looks like to run the race. It's this, it's this striving, it's this enduring, it's this pressing on towards this, this goal, this finish. Confident. Right? Confident that it's, that it's there and we will reach it. And then we can reach it, right? Now we're stepping outside of the illustration for a moment. But like this guy can reach it because Jesus is Lord. Right? Like that's what allows, like if we step out of the physical and into the spiritual for a moment, like the, the crossing of the line is possible because Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? And this is what, this is what makes endurance like possible. Right? And it's what, what Paul can say again uh, to endure, like to do work, to endure and to do work. Why? Well, because, because we're running towards this goal, right? The finish of this race that, in which the tape has already been broken, right? Like the race is run, right? Christ Jesus has, has proven victorious. He has crossed the line, and now we are following him, right? We're, we're running to him. Jesus is... Is, is Lord. Paul says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith, and now I'm, I'm, crossing, I'm crossing the line. Confident that there is a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, again, who purchased it, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Think about this. The crown that you receive at the end of your race, like, you didn't earn it, right? Like, that's what makes the, the run so joyful. Right? Like we can run because we are confident that there is a reward and it doesn't rest on our work. But it rests on his, right? Jesus' work. And so we we run confident that the tape is broken, that the victory is is has been had, and now we are just enjoying suffering and difficulty, hip to ear, just enjoying it. That is totally transformational. That changes the way that we live, right? It changes the way that we observe circumstances and situations and hardship as gospel opportunities to run the race, keeping the faith, knowing that there is a crown of righteousness which is to be rewarded from our king to us on that day. Man, it's the object of Paul's faith. Right, Jesus and his faithfulness that makes Paul's statement possible. Paul can say what he says because Christ is faithful. This was an idea that came up in our DNA group with, with Seth and Matt this past week. Right, that it's the, it's the object of our faith right, that makes keeping the faith possible. Because we struggle. Amen? Like we struggle to keep faith. We're oftentimes fearful, and we doubt. We spent a year going through the Gospel of Mark. These dudes 
saw Jesus. And at the end, they are afraid. Then the life of faith is a fearful life, right? And so thank goodness, right? Thank goodness that, that it's the faithfulness of King Jesus that makes the statement that Paul, that Paul pens here possible. It's the object of Paul's faith, Jesus, and his faithfulness that makes, makes what Paul said such incredibly good news. He concludes with this, verse 9, chapter 4. You didn't think we were going to get here, but we are. Do your best to come to me soon. And then he talks about about the various individuals who had deserted him and where they had gone. He talks about Luke. Hey, bring uh, Brent. Luke is, is with me. Get Mark. Bring him. He's been super useful to me in ministry. It'd be incredibly encouraging to see him again. He talks about Alexander the coppersmith doing him great harm. Some commentators believe that it was actually Alexander the coppersmith who like, reported Paul that led to his capture and subsequent imprisonment. Hey, but guess what? Like the Lord judges evil, right? We see that in verse 14. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. In my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about all of Asia deserting Paul. All of Asia? That's a lot of people. Like just deserting Paul. But then look what he says. It's very similar to what Jesus says, right, upon the cross, isn't it? Right? He, he says in verse 16, may it not be charged against them. Right? Like for, forgive them. I don't even know what they're, they're doing, right? It's very, it's very similar. But the emphasis in this concluding portion is not so much on all the abandonment that Paul has experienced, although it is certainly like many, right? Like many abandonment things happening here. But instead, it's on verse 17. It's not on those who have been unfaithful, but instead it is on the one who has been most faithful. The Lord, Paul writes in verse 17, stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me, that's a lot. Hang on, let's say that again. Follow me here. The Lord stood by me. Right? The Lord, everyone else has abandoned Paul, but the Lord remains with Paul. The Lord has strengthened Paul. That's the second statement that he makes. So that through Paul, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul has, again, this supreme confidence in the sovereignty of God and his plan and purposes being brought about by his power. Right? That, 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 that despite my difficulty, despite my abandonment, the Lord is faithful. He is with me. And through me and my imprisonment, we have seen proclamation to the Gentiles. I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, Paul writes. To him be the glory forever and Ever. Amen. Listen to this, this final statement. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul's not talking physical here so much, is he? Because he's already said, I'm not getting out of here. Right? I'm not expecting like deliverance from this cell. Right? But there is an end in sight. 
He's already referenced it in terms of the running the race and keeping the faith, hasn't he? You know, I was thinking about this passage on Thursday night. Some of you guys know I've started running. Encourage me. I need it um, because it has been uh, it has been challenging, but it has been so good. Friday night I went on a run, and I was thinking about this passage um, and kind of the conclusion here that, that Paul makes, which again is this is what we're kind of closing in on. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I was running on Friday night, and if you're unfamiliar with Carrollton, bear with me um, because you're going to be a bit confused. But if you know Carrollton, you're going to know what I'm talking about. And so we drove down, uh, we, I ran down, um, down the Greenbelt towards the Twin Lakes at Southwire. Do you guys know where these things are? Like by, by Southwire, the, uh, the, the wire place in Carrollton, right? There are these two lakes. You can drive through there. It's really beautiful. Go check it out. I was running through there years ago before the Greenbelt was there. Um, you just had to, like, risk your life to run there, okay? It was just basically like, Lord, like, you got this, like, here I go, right? Now they have this green belt that makes it, like, much easier to, to do this. Only it was late at night, okay? And um, this was the first time that I ran in this area since they completed that part, and I didn't have a headlamp, although I thought before I left, I should probably take a headlamp. I didn't. Okay, and so I just am going, and there's street lights. But when you get onto the green belt, um, light begins to like dissipate, and it just gets like really dark, and it's kind of like weaving, right? And you cross the lake, and on the other side, like Southwire is there, and there are lights. But in the middle of the lake, right, as you're running, there is like zero light. And there are trees, right? And so there's not exactly like moonlight or anything. It was so dark. I kid you not. At one point, I was just like going. And I'm just like, I mean, like, I guess like there's still path, right? There's still road. I can't see it. I almost stopped and like crawled because I literally like, you know, they say you can see like I could see nothing. Like I could see nothing. But I just kept going. Right, I just, I just kept running, one foot in front of the other, assuming that this path runs parallel to the road. And eventually I got to a point that it, it, there was a slight elevation gain, and at the top you could see like this light at Southwire, a point of reference. That was really what was the most terrifying part, was that there was no point of reference. I didn't know where I was going it wasn't so much that I couldn't see. It was like, what direction do I not see and proceed in? Okay? And so I climb the hill, and I see this light. And I, okay, I'm just going to go, like, I'm going to go straight for that. I'm just going to run towards that light. And as I got closer and closer and closer, then, like, the path began to, like, illume, right? Like, I began to see again. Now, here's why I tell that, that story. Because as I was running and I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Paul's statement in verse 18, right? This confidence that the Lord would rescue him and bring him safely into his kingdom. Paul doesn't know what the concluding moments of his life look like, right? It's a bit cloudy. Is Timothy going to come? Is he going to make it? Is he not? Is anybody going to be here with me? Like, what does the end of this race look like? I'm not entirely sure. But there is this point of reference, isn't there? Right, there's this, this, this heavenly kingdom. I'm not sure what the path in front of me looks like, but you know what? Because the path was back there, like because the path was back here, right, and the Lord has indeed been faithful, then there is this confidence that the path remains and that there is this heavenly kingdom in like the um, background, right, like fixed, that I'm just going to run toward that and I'm just going to trust. 
I'm just going to trust that it's still that it's still there. Now, what a beautiful picture of the Christian life. As we run this race, right, we live in a culture and we live in a world that is in constant conflict with the message of the gospel and the hope of Jesus. And in the midst of that, we are called to endure, doing the work of an evangelist and fulfilling ministry, gospel ministry, loving those who hate us and heralding the message. And we go, it is so dark, I don't even know where I'm running. I feel like I'm running headlong into danger. Only we know that there is this fixed point. And that it is sure because our king is faithful. We see the glow of the light of Christ and Paul's hope. And we, along with Timothy, endure. We run. We understand, and I want to close with this. I want, to, I want to close with these ideas. Okay, these are these are helpful. These are take homes. I think that we have these. Do we have these? We, we're checking. I think we have them. There we go. Awesome. I want to close with these ideas. Get this. Let's wrap our minds around this as we come to the end of this book. Following Jesus involves risk and tension. If you believe otherwise, let's chat. Okay, let's iron these things out because know that this is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not plush, it's not comfy, it's not easy, it's oftentimes challenging and difficult. It involves risk and tension. We see that this letter begins with an encouragement from Paul to Timothy, fan the flame. If you consider what we saw in chapter 1, that is the exhortation. Timothy, fan the flame. And it ends with this, preach the word and fulfill your ministry. It begins with fan the flame, and it ends with preach the word and fulfill your ministry. We are brought into this idea, right? What is it that it enables this as we seek participation, faithful participation in gospel ministry, proclaiming the message of Jesus, understanding that he is indeed worthy of all honor and praise. In the darkness and difficulty, we remember that Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, is in the presence of his people always. Do you know that? Is that comforting? It ought to. If it's not, then I don't know if we're meaningfully into the risk and the tension. Right? There ought to be seasons and times, realities and moments in which we go, man, thank goodness that Christ Jesus is with me because everyone else has left. Right? And the road is dark. And I don't know where I'm going, but I'm confident that my king, resurrected from the dead, is indeed with me. And so let this be a point of emphasis for us this morning. In the darkness and difficulty, let us, as God's people, remember that Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, is in the presence of his people always. As we go out, we live in mission, we understand that God is with us. We understand that he has rescued us, that the cross, the resurrection of our King provides ultimate hope and satisfaction in the face of difficulty, that we can endure with joy because of who Jesus is because what he has accomplished. That's our hope, right? That's our hope. We live in the risk and the tension of the Christian life. We hope in Christ. We remember Christ. We give thanks for his faithfulness, desiring now to live faithful lives in the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the name of our King. And that's where we close to Timothy. So let's pray. And let's ask the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts, our minds to these truths that we might see the hope of the gospel this morning and celebrate in our final moments together as we uh, prepare to come to the table.
and to take of the bread and the cup that we might celebrate. Right? We might celebrate who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. Let's pray uh, before we come to the table.